You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad, and uh, Dr. Vivian McAllister is a professor at West, uh, University of Western Ontario. Um, later on in this month, is going to do a presentation via Zoom, and it's called Border Flashpoints for Conflict. Is the Anglo-Irish Common Travel Area Agreement relevant to the Russia-Ukraine war? And uh, Vivian McAllister recently retired from his practice of surgery, where he was a specialist in transplantation and a professor in the University of Western Ontario. He served in the Canadian Armed Forces, where he was chief of general surgery, and he has completed several tours of duty in Afghanistan, Iraq, and in Haiti. Uh, he'll join, uh, the, he probably has joined at this stage the Western Department of History as an adjunct professor, and his interests are in biography and Canada's participation in wars. And... Uh, He's going to present the history of the Common Travel Area Agreement between the United Kingdom and Ireland, which is 100 years old this year and not confined to travel. This agreement has underpinned peaceful and constructive relations between the UK and Ireland, and Dr. McAllister will examine parallels between the Anglo-Irish wars in the 19th and 20th centuries and the current war between Russia and the Ukraine, and uh, will ask if the Common Travel Area is a mechanism to prevent border flashpoints of war. Um, Vivian, thanks a million for coming along. Delighted to have you here. Awesome. Thank you. Um, you're taking on a big subject there, particularly um, in the light of, you know, if you were to talk about this 10 years ago, when all was calm, it would have been an interesting topic. Um, now that things are somewhat challenging, both in the Irish sense and in the Russia-Ukraine sense, it's even more challenging. Um, a little bit of the background on yourself and what got you into this and your interest. Well, um, you know, I, I grew up in Ireland and I, I graduated in medicine in Ireland, but I've worked all my professional life uh, in Canada. So I, I, I call myself a Canadian and uh, have participated in Canadian life fully. But I haven't left Ireland behind uh, like yourself, I'm sure we bring a lot of history with us. Uh, my own grandparents were involved in the wars of independence in Ireland. And when I became involved with the Canadian forces and seeing uh, the effects of wars overseas and the effects on our people in Canada, uh, it made me you know, re-examine the type of history that we have been taught. Uh, we, you would say that we have a very nationalist approach to history, but it's even deeper than that. We tend to focus on the militants and we completely forget and uh, don't uh, study um, as, let's say, school children and growing up, but also as uh, citizens. Uh, we leave it to the professional historians to even examine what the civil servants did in those days? Who were the people behind all of this? And what prevented Ireland uh, from being crushed by England a hundred years ago? Uh, what prevented us from having constant wars all through the 20th century, when in actual fact, despite maybe many times when we could have descended into conflict, we never did. You know, we, we have had a very constructive relationship in Ireland with Britain. And uh, it made me re-examine some of those 
things that we have been uh, thought taught uh, in the past. Uh, and then, of course, now we're back into an area of conflict in the world that is very risky for all of us. Uh, and I saw quite extraordinary parallels between the Ukraine and Ireland uh, and their relationship with their neighbours, Britain and Russia, uh, respectively. So I, I started to examine that as a historian, really. Now, when you say that, like uh, my understanding of the situation in Croatia or in Ukraine would be that a bit like the north of Ireland, there's an area that would have strong affiliations to Russia, as you would have had in the north of Ireland, where there was an area with strong affiliation, as they would have seen it, to the UK. Is that somewhat a similar commonality? Oh, absolutely. When you go down the list, actually, Austin, you'll be quite astounded uh, at how how many parallels there are. Having a breakaway or a separated region uh, is one of those commonalities. Of course, the people who would have called themselves, who, whose allegiance would have been to Britain or to, in Ireland, known as loyalists, and in the Ukraine, who would have been from Russian background, would have been spread throughout the whole country. Um, but there is also a separated region. But there are other parallels. Um, there, the Ukrainians formed the largest non-Russian population in Russia, just as the Irish formed the largest non-British population in Britain. Uh, and this makes a link between us, which makes, should have made war very difficult. Um, and, you know, say that resolutions should be found rather than fighting. Uh, there are religious differences also that tend to magnify some of these nationalistic um, relationships. Uh, in the Ukraine, there's a, 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 they're orthodox but there's, and I get them mixed up, there's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church and then there's a, an Orthodox Church of Ukraine. One of them owes allegiance to Russia. And the uh, patriarch in uh, Moscow, Kirill, has supported the Russian invasion of Ukraine, magnifying some of these religious differences that are also uh, present uh, in the Ukraine. There's also issues of language. Uh, you know, as in Ireland, we speak English. And despite all of the attempts to get us to learn Irish, um, I would say we, we do so uh, maybe for, uh, we do so very little, but we, we, we still treasure it. Mm. And likewise, in the Ukraine, the common language is actually Russian, especially among professionals uh, and in the education side of it. But they're trying to Ukrainianize as much as possible. So uh, the parallels are actually quite extraordinary. It means that there, you've got two integrated societies that are now at war. It makes the war very difficult. And uh, if you're going to look for complete victory on one side or the other, it's only going to cause a tremendous amount of death and harm. Now, you're going to focus on the Common Travel Area Agreement or use it as um, part of what may be common and the uh, common travel area between the UK and Ireland is, say, is 100 years old. Um, yet despite that common travel area, particularly during the time of the Troubles, um, the Irish were still moving back and forward to England uh, particularly. 
Was there any parallel on that level between the Ukraine and Russia? Well, at the moment, there isn't. Um, so for for the Ukrainians and the Russians, they are they are currently in a, a situation of war. The Common Travel Area Agreement in Ireland came about during after our war. So after the treaty, uh, and then they were left with the situation. Well, what do we do now? So Ireland has its independence, was recognised as a dominion then, and gradually assumed more and more independence over the years since then. Uh, But essentially, uh, Ireland became independent in 1922. And while they had the handover at Dublin Castle, which was a very short affair, they now had to say, what do we do next? Because we have these integrated societies. And if we erect a hard border and say Irish people stay in Ireland and British stay in Britain, and we don't recognize anything that goes on in the, in the other country, we would have destroyed Ireland for sure, but we would have harmed Britain as well. And it was the civil servants who figured this out and came up with what they called the Common Travel Area Agreement. They didn't actually call it that at the beginning, and the history of this agreement is not very well written. Even though it's a 100 years old, it's not really... Uh, a treaty. It's not, hasn't got a single piece of legislation, but it affects just about all of the legislation in Britain and in Ireland, and is many is often mentioned in preambles. Uh, and quite extraordinarily, it survived all sorts of stresses, including um, the civil war in Ireland, the troubles in the north. It survived the economic war in the 1930s when we had a trade embargo between the two countries. It survived the Second World War when we refused to join the Allies. Um, And uh, more recently now, it was the first thing that both governments agreed to preserve with Brexit, because to some extent it was superseded by both Britain and Ireland joining the European Union or the European community as it was. And um, now that Britain has exited it, Uh, It's left us for the first time with different orientations. So Ireland is now orientated to Europe and Britain is turning in on itself. I'm not exactly sure what they're trying to achieve with Brexit, but it's a different orientation. And yet the first thing that both governments agreed on was that the common travel area agreement would continue. So despite all of this stuff about trade uh, and border regulations with respect to goods, they have said the movement of people uh, will continue. And the other thing, Austin, without going on too long about it, it wasn't only about the movement of people, because the, the agreement was that if you moved as an Irish person into Britain, you had the right to live as a British citizen. You could vote in elections. You could stand for Parliament. You can carry out any trade or activity without a visa. It's quite extraordinary. It's not just visiting. And likewise, British uh, citizens could come to Ireland and live as Irish citizens uh, without taking out Irish citizenship. Um, so this is, is, is quite a phenomenal agreement that they, they made. And I think it really evolved uh, over the years. 
but it's it's the most profound agreement between two countries uh, that I know of. So then if we now move to the conflict that is going on between Russia and, and Ukraine, and what you're going to do, as I understand it, is ask the question, is that agreement that exists there for 100 years, is there a relevance to it in the current climate? Well, in a way of understanding what the Common Travel Area Agreement, it's not something we ever talked about in Ireland, um, but we, we, we lived it. So we expect it to be able to cross the border to Northern Ireland, to go across the Irish Sea to Britain. We didn't even bring identification. People over here don't uh, actually realize that. For a long time, our driver's license was not a, a piece of identification at all. It was some sort of a long handwritten book um, without a photograph. And we never carried identification. Uh, but <clears throat> what um, to understand it, I, I try to think of other areas that did not have an arrangement like this. India and Pakistan became independent at the same time without this agreement. And it was tragic. It's, it's tragic, the consequences that they are suffering even today uh, from this failure. Um, you know, throughout the Middle East, they don't have agreements like this that could preserve their peace if they can get around to to uh, making such an agreement. And I think Russia and Ukraine will eventually have a border, obviously. It'll be either where it is now or it'll be somewhere to the west of it, of the current border. But that border, if it's a hard border, like they tried with the Iron Curtain countries, will leave them in a perpetual state of instability and unhappiness. So they have to eventually come to some sort of agreement in the same way that Ireland and Britain managed, despite the acrimony. So then, Vivian, when we look back in history and we see the history of the border in Ireland and the creation of the north of Ireland and the um, result of that over a period of time, the lessons learned must have some relevance also in when one would look at the Ukraine particularly, and, well, lots of other countries. But it would appear uh, that doesn't happen when conflict resolution uh, is on the table. Uh, people at the table are not saying, well, if we look at Ireland and look at what resulted by the creation of an area, and a 100 years later, there's still a problem. Uh, the sad thing is we don't learn lessons. Well, it, uh, I mean, there is a an urge to conflict and to resolve conflict with violence. Generally, I think looking at our history, looking at my own family's history, looking at my personal experience in the Canadian forces, violence tends to make conflicts worse. Mm -hmm. So it's probably part of human nature and we have to go through this phase of violence um, and eventually emerge either exhausted by the violence or repelled by it, so that we will then turn to mechanisms for peace. I agree with you, Austin, that this is not something that would resolve a war. This was the consequence of a war being resolved, that the will to stop the war was there on both sides. And then the side said, well, what do we do now? And by understanding that, and, you know, I'm, I'm 
deeply in awe of the professionalism of the Irish civil servants and the few British civil servants who got involved uh, in Irish affairs at that time. Their professionalism at that time was quite extraordinary. Um, and it's something, it's a great lesson for today. Uh, but they have created in that agreement a, a, a reason for not going to war again and actually making war quite stupid. That if their people are crossing the border as frequently as we cross over to Britain and Britain cross to Ireland and Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland together cross, it it makes war kind of irrelevant. If somebody said, we've got to go fight them, now we'd say, well, are you talking about rugby or are you talking about with weapons? Because really it doesn't make any sense if it's not rugby or soccer. So um, to that extent, um, you know, territory, yeah, it becomes uh, something and it's flag waving. But at a deeper level, and going back to the, what you talk about the civil servants, um, oftentimes the perception is that the politicians and the ruling party determine policy. And I loved Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister because in every episode of Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, the politician was being ruled and um, shackled and leash, put on leash by the civil servants. Um, and I guess what you're saying in some ways is that the civil servants are the quiet ones oftentimes who may be putting the policy into the, the hands of the politician rather than the other way around. Well, you know, Austin, I think there is a model for Sir Humphrey in Yes Minister, and it was a man called Warren Fisher. Right. And he was appointed as cabinet secretary in Lloyd George's government in 1919. And he survived as cabinet secretary through many governments. There was the disastrous government of Boner Law straight after Lloyd George. Uh, and we in Ireland were so fortunate that he was not Canadian as he was born, <laughs> was not the prime minister when uh, the treaty uh, had to be arranged between Ireland and, uh, and Britain. Um, that government was replaced by Ramsay MacDonald and uh, Warren Fisher remained the cabinet secretary. He remained an advocate for Ireland all through this period, telling politicians, stop getting, because it was Ramsay MacDonald that started the economic war and tried to ruin Ireland in economically. And it was Warren Fisher who kept saying, negotiate, negotiate, you can't do this. It will ruin Britain. Don't mind what you're trying to achieve by ruining Ireland. And uh, you're right. There's these quiet people behind who are very professional, who stop the hotheads, be they politicians or, militant, or militants, from uh, acting on their impulses. So then what we're seeing at the moment, is it as a result of either uh, the, uh, a dearth of such uh, public servants or that the public servant's role has in some way been emasculated? No, I don't. I think the public servants are still working away. They, get, they, they got us the uh, Anglo-Irish Agreement uh, with Margaret Thatcher and then the Good Friday Agreement 
later. And they're still beavering away to make sure that border uh, conflicts over, over trade do not become uh, an issue. The politicians are there for their own benefit most times, and they, they make great pronouncements uh, that we all know as voters are not possible uh, to follow through on. And, um, uh, you know, we forgive them when they are totally unworldly, knowing that, that these professionals are, are behind making sure that... I mean, in the end, the Northern Ireland situation about the border is has come down to sausages or something like that. I, I mean, from our side of the Atlantic, we're just looking at it and scratching our heads. They actually have the opportunity in Northern Ireland to be both part of the European Union and part of the British enterprise. And nobody is stopping them except themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when they figure that out up there, they will be in the best part of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think there are people who are trying to make it all happen. We know where every truck is now that moves across borders, and it contains goods that are destined and licensed for certain places. And I think that's what the British meant, that we could use a high-tech kind of approach to goods crossing Ireland from uh Northern Ireland going to Britain and goods crossing Britain from Ireland going to Europe so that we can maintain some sort of a free movement order. One thing in Ireland is that we can't stand showing ID. We mm-hmm. don't like being asked who you are and show me your ID. It must be something that goes way back uh, because there seems to be an anathema to it. It's funny when Ireland, Irish people come to North America, in the United States and in Canada, we have no trouble showing ID right. everywhere we go. That's right. <laughs> and we're very proud to have it. As, but, long, as, uh, it's an, as long as it's an Irish passport. <laughs> but they're, they're going through that now, and it's mainly about trade. It's not about people. So, Vivian, we're going to have to wrap up. Thank um, you very much for having and, me. And we need to give the details. It's a Zoom um, presentation. It's at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the 28th of June. Uh, so uh, if you want to register, uh, the best place to go, is there a link that somebody should go to in order to register? I think if you Google, so I'm, I'm giving it as part of the defensive security studies uh, to the um, Royal Canadian Military Institute, RCMI. And I think if you just Google RCMI or rcmi.org, uh, you'll uh, you'll find a link to it there. And uh, we'll try and put include a link somewhere in the um, promo we put out for this and everything else so that someone can have something to click on and bring it straight to them. Vivian McAllister, it's been a real pleasure meeting you and chatting about this, and thanks a million for taking the time. Thank you, Austin.